These are the instructions of the body. We open the fridge, you, we find a chocolate cake. We do what, 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 what they told us, the, the, what evolution told us to do. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys are envious of me right now. Um, it's not every day that you sit across a man that you deeply admire. You are a huge fan. Uh, so yes, Professor Harari, I'm a huge, huge fan. Everybody here, I'm sure we're all part of the Sapiens family. And uh, um, I must say that, you know, um, when I started building out KidsTopPress.com, I had no idea that we would reach 20 million. And I had no idea that I'd be interviewing you one day. Uh, honestly, if you ask me as, as part of being a parent to a teenager, um, I would love to ask you uh, if our ancestors had any tips on raising teenagers and dealing with toddler tantrums. But I know that we're not here for that. So I'm not going to take any more time. Everybody's here to listen to you. So I'm going to dive straight into the questions. I hope you're ready. Why should we understand human evolution, especially the little children seated here? Why is it important for them? It's because it takes a long time to acquire a deep fear of something. Millions of years ago, when humans evolved in Africa, there were dangerous spiders there. So when you see a spider and you're afraid of it, this is actually a memory from hundreds of thousands of years ago when we lived in the wild and there were many dangerous spiders. Cars, on the other hand, they've been around for just a hundred years. This is not enough time to develop this kind of deep-seated, bodily fear of them. So it doesn't come from the body, the fear of, of cars. It, you have to educate people to tell them about the dangers of cars. Um, so this is, for instance, something which to understand it, you need to understand evolution. Similarly, not just fear, but also the things that we like. Most people like to eat sweet, sugary yeah. stuff. Parents spend a lot of time teaching kids to be uh, aware of cars. Yeah. They also spend a lot of time telling them, don't eat so many sweets. And it's strange. I mean, if it's not good for me, why is it so good? It, it doesn't make any sense. Why should my body all the time be craving to eat something which is not good for it? I mean, the body isn't stupid. Yeah. So what's happening? And again, if you look at the world today, it makes no sense. But if you look at the world of how we evolved for hundreds of thousands of years, it suddenly makes sense. Right. Because when we lived in the African savanna, there were lots of spiders, but uh, almost no sweet things. The only sweet things were either fruits or honey. And if you live in the African savanna and you don't have a lot of food, and you come across a, a, a tree full of sweet fruits, the sensible thing to do is to eat as many of them as quickly as possible. Because if you eat just one or two and says, okay, I'll come back tomorrow and I eat some more, you come back tomorrow, there are no fruits left because the baboons ate everything. So our body is programmed, like you find something sweet, eat as much of it as possible, as quickly as possible. We're following that very strictly. Yes, and we are following it. I mean, this is, these are the instructions. We read the instructions. These are the instructions of the body. We open the fridge, you, we find a chocolate cake. We do what, 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 what they told us, the, the, what evolution told us to do. We, our body is, it hasn't caught up with the fact that we are no longer in the African savanna. Uh, we are living in a modern society and there are lots of sweet things around, and, and, and um, yeah, now it's, it's, it's problematic. So this is why evolution is important. It's not some theoretical thing 
that you learn in university. It's connected to your deepest fears and your deepest desires every day. As someone who has read most of your books, I thought the illustrated version was kind of just made for children. You simplified it even further with Unstoppable Us. What was your inspiration behind Unstoppable Us? Like what inspired you? The idea was to take the big ideas of, of sapiens, of human history, and tell them in a way which will be accessible mm -hmm. to somebody who is 10 years old. Like maybe even thinking about myself when I was 10, what are the things that I wished I, that, that somebody would have told me when I was 10 years old? But you know, you need to tell them in a way which will be understandable. So you need to use, you know, a lot of examples and illustrations and, and, and simple language, which actually makes it much harder to write it. Because when you write for adults, and you're not really sure what you want to say, you hide it, kind of you hide behind the big words and the long sentences, and yeah, I'm not sure what I want to say, so okay, I'll write this very big complicated sentence, nobody will really understand, that's fine. Um, but when you write for kids, you can't do that. I mean, if you write these big long sentences with complicated words, they just leave the book. Yeah. So you have to think doubly hard. What do I really want to say? And what I uh, learned from years of teaching in universities and so forth is that if you can't explain it in a simple way, it means you don't really understand it. So if you, if you find yourself writing this very complicated thing, you just need to go back, think more, and really be sure what do you want to say. It's not true of all subjects, I don't know, like quantum mechanics, that's difficult, I mean there is no way to simplify it. But uh, w with the key ideas of history, it should be possible to present them in a simple way. Why? Because it's about our daily life. History is not something that happened thousands of years ago to some king. It's what's happening to us every day, even as kids. So it should be uh, 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 accessible to, to also to kids. Right, absolutely. And I think, uh, like you rightly said, it's just about making it simpler make it more accessible. We are at that stage where I think each one of us is somewhere insecure that will technology make our children um, you know, and their skill sets redundant? Or will, we, will they be competing? Or what will they be competing for? Um, so do you think humans will still run the world? Um, and I ask you this because you know, parents, uh, parents of today, we want to know how can they be unstoppable? Being unstoppable is not necessarily something we should aim for. I chose the title Unstoppable Us because it has a double meaning. It has the, you know, the positive meaning that yes, we are very powerful, we can do whatever you, we want and so forth, but it also has a negative meaning that we also cannot stop ourselves. That no matter what we achieve, this is a characteristic of human beings, no matter what we achieve, we always want more, we can't stop. Like you have a million dollars, you want two million dollars. You have 10 million dollars, you want 100 million dollars. It's very difficult to kind of just stop, relax, and be satisfied with what you have. And this is why we conquer the world, human beings. But this is also why we are in many ways destroying the world, the ecosystem, uh, unbalancing the entire ecosystem, uh, driving so many species to extinction, and also endangering our own future. So I think we need to learn how to stop and just, you know, just enjoy what we have instead of all the time looking for more. 
And technology is, is, is part of this issue. Because we are very good at inventing new technologies that give us more and more power, but we are not very good in using all that power to uh, make ourselves happier or to make the world a better place. Now, technology itself, it can be used for good purposes or for bad purposes. This is true of almost every technology. There is no good technology and there is no bad technology. You can use a knife to murder somebody. You can use the knife to save their life in surgery. And you can use the knife to cut salad for dinner. The life doesn't care what you do with it. It's, it's, it's our choice. So um, the key is not just to invent a technology, but to invest the time to develop our own minds, to develop our wisdom, our compassion, so that we would use knives to save people and not to kill them. Uh, and it's the same with the new technology like AI, but there is one big difference. AI is different from every previous technology in history, from knives, from atom bombs, from cars, from everything. Why is it different? It's the first technology in history that can make choices by itself. Knives can't choose what to do with them, but AI can. Like we now have armies around the world, for instance, developing autonomous weapon systems, what is commonly called killer robots. This is a weapon, it's the first weapon in history that can decide by itself whether to kill somebody, whether to attack somebody. And like this, self-driving cars and, and so many other technologies. And this is very dangerous because uh, very soon we may no longer have a choice about what to do with the technology. The technology will make the choice. It will even choose about us. For instance, everybody today, when, I don't know how it is in India, but in certain parts of the world, when you apply today to a bank, to get a loan, like you want to buy your, your, a house, you don't have enough money, you go to the bank and you ask the bank for a loan. It's not a human being who makes this very crucial decision about your life. It's an AI, an algorithm that collects data on you and decides whether to give you a loan or not. And if the computer says, no, don't give this person a loan, and you go to the bank and you ask, why not, what's wrong with me? And the bank says, we don't know. The computer said no. And we just trust our computer, so we don't give you a loan. And this is increasingly happening in more and more fields in life. So you apply to university, you apply to get a job, all kinds of things, and your fate is in the hands not of a human being, but of a computer, an AI. And uh, we have to be extremely careful about it because uh, if we lose control of the future, there is no guarantee that the AI will make good decisions about us. It almost makes me feel like if the digital footprints that we will leave behind, we may not be able to trace them back. So if you've made a mistake, the system has recorded that, right? So like you said, for university or for college or for whatever else, it's so important for us to be so conscious of what digital footprints we're leaving behind because systems are going to be making those choices and not humans. Yeah, and, and the frightening thing about that is that, you know, it turns the whole of life into one long job interview. Because yeah. previously, when you apply, say, to college, you know, okay, I have a few stressful days. I go to do this exam or that exam, and, and, and they decide according to that. 
Now your whole life is like this exam. Because maybe, I don't know, you're 10 years old and you do something stupid somewhere and it's recorded. And then when you apply to a good school, it comes up and you don't get accepted to the good school. And because of that later on, again, it, it's, it's never, it's never, it never disappears. You don't get accepted to college, so you don't get a good job, all the way to the, you don't ac get accepted to the good cemetery because of what you did when you were 10. Everything is recorded, nothing is ever forgotten, so everything you do at any moment of your life may meet you 10 years, 20 years down the road. I don't know, maybe in 20 years you are a politician, you're running for elections, maybe you are a, a, a judge, they want to make you Supreme Court judge. And this thing you did when you were a teenager comes up because it, it's, it it's never disappears, it, it's, it, it is never deleted. And you know, it, it's broader in a sense because Competition, let's say, for status is part of the life of every human and every animal. Also dogs, also elephants, also lions, they all compete for status. But most in, in, the case, in most cases, you have times of competition and then you have times to relax. Increasingly, there is no such time. What I'm doing, what I'm saying at any moment can be known to everybody, so it's part of this status competition. And this creates a kind of stress which nobody before had to deal with. We all the time had this ability to switch from between stress and relaxation. Now it's all stress. In the earlier ages, especially in the chapter that you mentioned about the Stone Age, where people actually left selfies with their handprints, right? And the ones that was really, really dear to them, which was on the board, they'd actually carry that. And that wasn't shared. But today we want to share everything. How is that not ingrained in our previous behavior? Or is it? Yeah, we are social animals. So it's very important for us how other people see us. We very often see ourselves through the eyes of, of, of other people. But again, I mean, for, mo for all of history, um, you always had times off when nobody sees what you do, when you can be just with yourself, when you can uh, explore yourself or behave in, in, in I don't know, in, in uh, uh, stupid ways. With all these human rights that people have, people also need the right to stupidity from time to time. Like when you're on stage, here we are talking with each other and we have all these people here and maybe people are watching at home, so we have to be very responsible. If I say something stupid, if I say something which is insulting to some people, which uh, may cause hatred, which may cause anger, this is irresponsible. So I have to, have to be very, very careful about what I say in public. But when I'm, when I'm in private, maybe with just a couple of friends, I can say stupid things. And that's important because it gives my mind time to relax. I mean, I can tell you that being here on stage, it's, it's stressful. I have to think very carefully what I say. But then I, I give my mind time to relax. And increasingly today in the world, there is no time to relax. Because you don't know who is listening and who is recording whatever. And you know, it's, it's true of, 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 of people like us, it's true of politicians, that you have this, this thing that, I don't know, that they say some stupid so joke in, in a party to somebody and tomorrow morning it's all over the internet and they're in big trouble. And I think we should hold politicians very much responsible to what they say in public, in a public speech, on television. 
because the, the words of a leader, they are like seeds that go into the minds of millions of people. And if you sow seeds of hatred in the minds of millions of people, that's very irresponsible. Creates so much misery and violence. But again, if, if, after, if, if you afterward in a private party tell some stupid joke, I think politicians should have a right to stupidity in private, just like everybody else. Where you talk of larger corporations like a McDonald's or a TikTok, um, and how these can be more harmful, and then, you know, earlier we feared the lion uh, coming or, you know, any of these animals coming in, in, you know, we feared them in the past, but we all are aware that it's a danger. But how do we move from knowledge to action? Like, you know it's there. It's no, you know that you're, you're getting too used to it. You know that you're getting too addicted to it. But how do you move past it? Well, there are two things to, to think about. I mean, first of all, it's not easy to understand it. Because, again, we are used to dangers like spiders, like tigers, things like that. Um, to, to understand, you know, what is a corporation? Like you have, I don't know, Google or Facebook that collects information on me. What is Facebook? You know, try to explain to a 10-year-old what is a corporation. You have all these books explaining ki to kids about animals, about tigers, about elephants. It's very important. I think th th it's very important. But how many times that, does an average kid in Mumbai meet, meet a tiger? It's quite rare. But they meet corporations every day. They meet Facebook and McDonald's and Coca-Cola and Google every day. And they need to know what is this thing and how to, be, how to be careful about it. You don't run away because this is the modern world. You have to engage with them. So we have a chapter in the book which tries to explain what is a corporation to 10-year-olds. And it's, 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 it's not easy, but we thought it was very important. Basically, you know, corporations are fairy tales for adults. You know, like people believe in, in, in I don't know, in, in demons and in angels. So a corporation is basically like that. It's not something you can, you know, a tiger, you can see it, you can touch it, you can, it has a smell. It's a real thing. A corporation, you can't see Google, you can't smell Facebook. It's just a story in our mind. It's a story in which millions, billions of people believe, so it gives this immense power, but in the end, it is just an, a story in our mind. It has no body, it has no mind of its own, can't feel anything. Um, so one thing is, is just to understand what it is. That, that, that's complicated. The other thing is to, you know, these big corporations, they are eating information. They are eating our information and get bigger and bigger because of that. That's such a strange thing. And uh, we, how to deal with them we, 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 earlier we talked about it's not good for you to eat too much sugar. Um, it's also, that, that's, that's not good for your, for your body. We also need an information diet for our mind. You know, we, f we are very careful, many people today are very careful about what they put into their mouth, what they eat. But we tend to be very careless about what kind of information we put into our mind. We sometimes have this, I don't know, junk food diet of information that we just, for hours, we just sit and feed ourselves with hatred, with anger, with greed. 
And the same way they have these labels on, 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 on chocolate and things like that. It has, I don't know, 20% sugar, 40% fat. If you want to eat it, okay, go ahead, but at least you know what's in it. They need something like that also on all these videos and tweets and things like, okay, this video, it has 40% greed, 20% hatred, 20% <laughs> anger. If you want to eat it, okay. Oh my God, that was, that was brilliant. That was absolutely brilliant. You know, India is going through such an interesting phase. Traditionally, we've grown up as a very hierarchical society, right? Uh, and if I have to just colloquially say, and I hate to say it, but, you know, a farmer's son will be a farmer. A politician's son will be a politician. Um, but I think social media or access to information and the internet technology is somewhere breaking those barriers. Is that something that's happened in the past? Is it a phenomenon or is it here to stay as technology progresses? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, we, I said a lot of bad things about technology, but of course technology is also can be a force for good. You know, and, and with all these social media, yes, it's a good thing. It gives voice to many people that previously had no voice. In many cases, it encourages, you know, creativity. And uh, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, the dominant model in the media business was like in television, that uh, people thought that the consumers, they were called couch potatoes. You know, the, the view of the average person, oh, these average people, these normal people, they are couch potatoes. They just sit all day on their, on their, on their couch like potatoes and they just watch television and they do nothing. And when social media started appearing, many of the big executives, they didn't understand the rationale behind it because they said, okay, we can have millions of videos on YouTube, but who is going to make millions of videos? We don't have the money to pay all the actors and, and screenwriters and people who with microphones. I mean, who's going to make it all of this? And when some people said, okay, I, you know, the users will make the, the videos. They, you're joking. What users will make the videos? The users are couch potatoes. They don't do anything. They just want to be entertained. And it turned out to be completely wrong that people got up from the couches and started dancing and singing and, and making videos of, of themselves. And it released a huge flood of creativity, which is a good thing. And as you said, it also broke down uh, some of the hierarchies in the world. And we know this is not the first time it, it's happening in history. It happened many times before. Um, maybe one of the biggest revolutions of the previous centuries was uh, changing the gender hierarchy. You know, for thousands of years, you had all these revolutions in the world, uh, new religions, new social movements, political systems. But one thing always remained constant. Uh, women were almost always uh, subordinated to men. And you had all these stories, also in many religions, they often had a religious justification that, you know, to put it in a very simple way, God likes men more than women. Or God likes boys more than girls. This is why only boys can be rabbis or, or priests. So only they should go to school. And this was very common in so many cultures. And over the last century, uh, even though we are still far from having complete equality, people realized that this is just not true. This is just some crazy story that somebody invented thousands of years ago, and it's just not true. And it was remarkable to see the uh, swiftness of the change. So again, we haven't reached complete equality. 
And there are countries which are still far behind, like we are seeing now what's happening in Afghanistan or the demonstrations in Iran and, and, and so forth. But it's, it was one of the biggest changes in human history. And for me as a historian, what was really remarkable and positive about it is that it was almost completely peaceful. You have a lot of people who think that if there is a big social problem and if you want to make a big change in society, you must use violence. It's the only way that you can make big changes is with violence. You have this you know, famous saying, I think by Lenin or somebody, that if you want to make an omelet, you need to break some eggs. And the amazing thing about the feminist revolution and about the changes in, in gender hierarchy is that um, at least from the side of women, they used no violence. They didn't start any wars. They didn't send anybody to the guillotine or to concentration camps. They didn't even assassinate any president or prime minister. And still they completely changed the world. So, when I look at, at what social media is doing right now, I think, yeah, it's also, it has, again, negative potential we talked about earlier, but it has huge positive potential uh, to break and change the hierarchies in a, in a peaceful way, just by giving people more voice and being able to, 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 to express themselves. Um, and we don't know, of course, what will happen in the future. I hope it will go in a positive direction, that we know how to uh, um, harness the immense potential of social media for good and not for spreading hatred and anger and fear. We have enough of those already. We don't need more. Yeah, we also have some men like Gandhi who said, and I, and I will make the whole world blind. Absolutely. That's coming, <laughs> coming from India, you have to hear that. Another question that I'd love to ask on behalf of all the parents here. We're a very, very, in, you know, we're a generation who's sort of earning our own and coming into being on our own. Um, and we as, you know, as millennials are pretty much self-made. We feel as parents that our kids are extremely entitled and they're growing up in a state of abundance, which we haven't experienced. How did our ancestors deal with abundance and and, and what there's any impact or any, any historic evidence to that on raising people in abundance? Well, you know, I mean, th there is, to, to a large extent, material abundance, but th there is still shortages of many other things. That, um, you know, we shouldn't think of young people today as being so privileged and so, yes, they are protected from some dangers and problems that previously were very common, like famine, but they are exposed to so many new dangers and so many new anxieties, like what we talked about with, with social media. So it's not like they, oh, they have it easy. What, what are they complaining about? They um, have very huge challenges. And, you know, ultimately, humans, I and mean, we've talked about it before, are not very good with abundance because it's so difficult for us to be satisfied. You know, I have a dog. He goes, he eats. After he eats, he just goes back and falls asleep and sleeps for most of the day. He doesn't want anything more. You <laughs> don't get bothered. Hmm? You don't get bothered. No. 
but for a human being, no, no matter what we achieve, we always want something more. So, okay, we have enough food, I want this, I want that. And it's, it's, it's never ending. And this is kind of the, uh, I don't know, the, the psychological challenge or even the spiritual challenge that every person faces within themselves. And you look at the most powerful people today in the world. You look at the billionaires, you look at the presidents. They don't strike me as particularly happy people or satisfied people. And, um, you know, with all their enormous power, I mean, some of them are good people, they, they do good, but some of them, because of, you know, many times because of their own psychological issues, they inflict suffering on millions of people in their pursuit of some imaginary goal that, um, I, don't know, I don't know who it was who said it, but that if, if, you, if people could just sit quietly for a moment, it would go a long way towards solving many of humanity's problems, but, but it's just too difficult for us. Did our ancestors also have to face the pressures of coming first in class and studies? Well, depending which answer. So if we think about people in the Stone Age, there are no schools in the Stone Age, there are no, you don't have to sit for an exam in mathematics or history or whatever. Um, but you do have tests every day. Um, you need to climb a tree to pick fruits. If, you don't, if you're not very good at climbing trees and you fall down and break your leg or break your head, you could die. Um, you have, I mean, the, there is a tiger running after you. If you don't know what to do, again, it endangers your life. You need to cross a river and you're not, you're not very good swimmer, again. So they, they face life and death tests almost every day. Um, again, it's not about being better than somebody else. But very often the key to succeed in any of these issues is to cooperate with the others. Whether it's uh, getting fruits or escaping a tiger or crossing a river, uh, the key lesson that you learn as a Stone Age person is that if you try to do everything by yourself, you're dead. You just can't survive just by yourself. You have to cooperate with other people. That's the real human superpower. Uh, so it's not about being better than everybody. It's about being able to cooperate with them. And you know, each, each, if you live in a, in a hunter-gatherer band, each person in the band, usually there is something that they are the best at. So somebody can be the best hunter, but somebody else is the best healer. So if you get wounded, they know how to treat you. Uh, somebody is the best tool maker. Somebody is the best storyteller. So there is a role for, for everybody. It's not just about competing and being the best. This one's the flavor of the season, which is did our ancestors play sport, football, cricket? Was there, which was their favorite sport? We don't know exactly what games they played in the Stone Age, but they definitely played a lot of games. Uh, you know, even, even animals play games, like our closest relatives in nature, like the chimpanzees, they play lots of games. So uh, sometimes they, you know that they play with sticks, they, they, they play imitation games, like sometimes you see an old chimps walking and then he doesn't know it, but behind him a couple of youngsters are walking and imitating how he's walking. Um, and people, scientists watch it, so they see oh, yeah, these chimps, they are playing. Um, so we know that uh, animals play and our, our ancestors also played. They didn't have, of course, computer games and balls and things like that, but 
to a large extent, much of life. I mean, the, the, the difference between play and work was, was blurred. Many of our games today are actually, you know, in a way trying to go back to life in the Stone Age. If you wake up, if you're a kid, you wake up in the morning and you say, ah, I wish I didn't have to go to school. I would have much preferred to go to the forest and climb a tree or fish in the river. You're basically missing. Part of your body is, remembers how it was in the Stone Age and wants to go back there. You always say that kids were not taught history well. Mm -hmm. If you had to go back and teach history, how would you do it? Hmm. I'm talking about my own uh, uh, studies, yes, you know, I don't know how it is here, but in my country, in Israel, they teach kids, at least this is how I was taught, they teach almost only the history of our people. They teach the history of Israel and of the Jewish people. Even if they talk about somebody else, like the Roman or the French or anybody, it's always about what they did to us. <laughs> I mean, they, it's never like they have their own... <laughs> and as you grow up, learning this kind of history, you get the impression that we are the most important people in the world. Yeah. The whole of history is just about us. You know, it's like, a, like a, a, again, a play on stage, like we're at the center of the stage, and you know, we have these Romans and Greeks, they're on the side, and I don't know, the Chinese, they're far away, they don't even count, it's all about us. And it sounds funny, but it also has tragic consequences because you feel that uh, you're the only thing that matters in the world, or your people. Like if something bad is done to your people, that is, this is terrible. But if we do something bad to somebody else, ah, that's, that doesn't matter because it's us. I mean, we are allowed to do it. And it took me many, many years to realize, you know, actually, the world is not turning around the Jewish people. <laughs> it may look like it, but it's not, tr it's not true. And for most of history, I mean, the, you know, it, the, the, the Jewish history is interesting, yeah, uh, but it's not the center of the world. And it's, looking back, it's, it's amazing how long it took me to realize this very simple fact. That, you know, now in India, you probably say, but this is obvious. I mean, the, you know, history turns around us, the Jews, I mean, who, who cares about them? But it's, it's almost every people have this kind of misconception that they are the most important people in the world and everything is about them. Um, and, um, you know, it's, 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 it's very humbling to realize that it's not about any of us. Um, and there are many other humans in the world. There are many other animals in the world. There are many other planets and galaxies and so forth. Um, we are not at the center of the stage. And uh, coming to terms with this, I think, is, again, it's, it's, it's really a kind of um, spiritual quest to dissolve some of this ego, some of this self-centeredness. But you also realize that it, it makes, it, it relaxes things. It makes life uh, uh, lighter. Also, you can, you can listen more, you can see more. You know, it even happens on the level of, of a completely individual level, like you talk with somebody and you never really listen to them because you're constantly thinking about what you want to say. Am I saying that? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not saying that. <laughs> but it, 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 it's very common human experience that you're talking with somebody and you're actually just wanting to say something. And the only reason you kind of listen to the other person, you're waiting till they make a pause so you can insert your thing.
And going through life like that, I mean, this is horrible. I mean, you're completely closed to, to, to the world. So, um, you know, one of the reasons that I, I wrote the book is to tell his story from a completely different perspective. And when you go back to the Stone Age, uh, none of the people that exist today in the world uh, was there in the Stone Age. I mean, the oldest nations in the world are maybe 5,000 years old. You look at something like Egypt, um, you know, ancient Egypt, okay, it's the same as Egypt today, you can argue about it, but let's say 5,000 years old. But you go back 50,000 years, and there are no Jews, no Muslims, no Indians, no Chinese, no nothing. There are still humans, just like us, as smart as us, they can feel everything we feel, but it's a completely different uh, uh, scene. And um, maybe one last thing to say about it, if you, go, if you really go back 50,000 years, it's amazing to realize that besides our species of humans, there are other human species around, like Neanderthals or, or like Homo Denisovan. And um, this is, in a way, one of the, again, when I grew up and I came across these other human species, this was, in a way, shocking. Because, uh, again, we are self-centered, not just nationally, but also as a species. We think that the whole of nature turns around us and that we are completely different from all the other animals. Because there is no, no other animal is like us. The closest, the chimpanzees, they are still quite different. But to realize that 50,000 years ago, there were other human species on Earth. And probably our ancestors are responsible for their disappearance. It's kind of the original sin of, of humanity, um, getting rid of our closest relatives in nature. But also we have today evidence that there was some interbreeding between the species. So, you know, 50,000 years ago, there was a kid whose maybe his mother was a sapiens and his father was a Neanderthal. And we are all the descendants of that mixed couple. And especially, you know, today with all these talks about uh, different ethnic groups and religions, and is it okay for a person from one religion to marry a person from another religion? And what are you talking about another religion? You have two animals from different species having a kid together, and all of us are the descendants of, of that union. So this gives you some perspective about the kind of conflicts that we are encountering today. Thank you, Iwal. Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful chat.